This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey guys, welcome back to Calvary Online. So glad you're with us as we continue our series called Summer Playlist. What's the most important question anyone has ever asked you or the most important question you've ever answered? You know, like, will you take the job or do you want to buy this house? Maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but perhaps when he asked you, will you have dinner with me? It ended up being the most important question you had answered up to that point in your life because then it resulted in, will you marry me? Or maybe one like this, which we all hate when someone asks us this question. Do you know how fast you were going back there? Or maybe it was a really serious question Like, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? For a couple weeks together during our Summer Playlist series, we've been asking ourselves what I think is the most important question any of us can answer. We began looking at it last week in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17. And the question was, who is Jesus? It was a question the Apostle Paul wanted to answer for his friends who made up the church of the Colossians in the first century. They had similar questions about who Jesus is like many of us do. And in fact, in their church in the first century, some people had started to teach some things about Jesus that were untrue. And Paul wanted to help them have a more clear and accurate understanding of who Jesus is. And so last week, as we were together and looking at verses 15 through 17, we saw that Paul described Jesus as the uncaused king of creation. And he reigned and ruled over creation in four ways. First, Jesus designed creation. He is the originator of it. He's like the architect of creation. All things were made by Jesus. And then we saw Jesus as the builder of creation. All things were made through him. And the owner of creation, all things were made for him. And also as the sustainer of creation. Because Paul described Jesus as holding all things together. And so as we looked at those three verses in Colossians, when we got through, we said to ourselves, how could we as people possibly relate to the uncaused king of creation. He seems so magnificent, so awesome. How could we have a relationship with him? That's where I think Paul continues today in verses 18, 19, and 20 in Colossians chapter 1. He views Jesus not just as the uncaused king of creation, but in more personal terms in the verses we're going to look at today. He describes Jesus as the author of salvation, as the king of salvation. And he describes Jesus in three ways as the king of salvation. First, as the unequaled author of it. And also as the unearned award of salvation. And finally, as the unmatched agent of salvation. So, if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Where Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul begins by describing Jesus, the king of salvation, as the unequaled author of it. Look closely at the beginning of verse 18. 
Paul describes Jesus as the head of the body, the church. This is an image or a picture that Paul uses to describe the people of God, the people who have been saved by Jesus, the body, the church. And his picture here of Jesus is that he is the head of it, which means he's above it. He's in control over it. He has authority over the body. When you think about what your head does, it, it sort of sends commands to the hands and the feet, to the arms and the legs. It's, it's life source. It's the power source of the body. And so too is Jesus in his relationship to the church. This is the way that Paul often describes Jesus and the church as this metaphor of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul says, Now you, the people who make up the church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Which means that since Jesus is the head of the body, the church is totally dependent upon Jesus. This is our commitment as a church together, that we would build Christ-centered communities. That's what we're committed to. And it's our responsibility to make sure that our church always remains totally dependent upon Jesus. This is a struggle for churches and has been a struggle for churches throughout history. Even the church of Colossae in the first century was struggling with its dependence on Jesus because other people were teaching these untruths about him or saying perhaps that maybe you needed more than Jesus in order to experience the true Christian life. Paul says, no, Jesus is the head of the body. The church must be totally dependent upon him. I think there's three ways in our day today that churches drift away from dependence on Jesus. The first can be that they try to please people rather than looking to Jesus. And we can understand why churches do that because we love people. We want people to feel welcomed and, and accepted and a part of our church. But when churches drift from being totally dependent upon Jesus and trying to please people, suddenly what becomes more important is the opinions of people rather than what Jesus says and who Jesus is and what he thinks about our church. The second way that churches, I think, struggle today with this issue is that they try to chase cool, like what's relevant, what's happening in society? How can we look more and more like what's happening outside the church to draw people who are outside of the church into the church? They have good motives, but they lose their dependence upon Jesus. And another way that I think affects churches today and throughout history is that rather than being totally dependent upon Jesus, they end up compromising truth because sometimes the truth claims of Jesus are very difficult to accept. They're hard to believe. They might be harsh even. And so in an effort maybe to even please people or to try to chase cool, they compromise truth. And we as a church can't ever let this happen. We, we have to remain as the people of God, as the people who make up this body at Calvary Bible Church, totally dependent upon Jesus. That's our work together as we faithfully endeavor to follow him, that we would be totally dependent upon Jesus. Because the true church is totally dependent upon Jesus, it's also interconnected with him, just like a head is a part of the body which means that Jesus isn't disinterested in what happens in the lives of his people. He's not disconnected from what happens in your life. He isn't dispassionate about the problems and pains that we might experience because he is connected to us. In fact, here is Paul's description of when he met Jesus for the very first time. It's in Acts chapter 2 and verse 7. He's recounting what occurred when Jesus met him on the road. And he says, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that was his Roman name, why are you persecuting me? 
Now, if you know the story of the Gospels and the story of um, the Acts of the Apostles, there's really no evidence that Paul ever met Jesus personally or personally persecuted Jesus while he was on the earth. And this is after Jesus' return to heaven that he appears to Paul and describes what Paul was doing as persecuting me. When in fact, the evidence that we see is that Paul was persecuting the early followers of Jesus, the people who made up the body, the early followers of Jesus who were a part of the church. Paul was looking over and happy about their execution or their persecution. And yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so connected to his people, to his church, that when they suffer, he suffers. When they're persecuted, Jesus describes himself as being persecuted. We're not alone because Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, what is the church? Is the church just a place that we go to, like a building, or is it an organization? Some churches today just seem like big corporations. So is the church a place? Or is the church a people, a community, a group of people who are gathered in the name of Jesus? I think the question of the church is not a question of where it meets, but who it is. And we'll see this unfold in the verses that come, but the church is defined as the people who have been redeemed and saved by the King of Salvation, Jesus. Those people who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit because they have put their faith and their trust in the head of the body, the church, Jesus Christ. He is the beginning, Paul says. I think this first part of verse 18, where Jesus is the head of the body of the church, is sort of the heading over the verses that follow. And what Paul describes now is Jesus' function as the head of the body of the church. And he starts by saying that Jesus is the beginning of the church. It all begins with him. Last week we saw, because Jesus is the owner of creation, that it all belongs to him. But today we're seeing that it all begins with him. Creation belongs to him. But there is something that happens in the life of people where a new creation begins with Jesus. Jesus is the author of salvation. And in 2 Corinthians verse 5, Paul describes this when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The church was not started by a group of people who had a common interest. The church began with Jesus. The church wasn't incorporated by a board of directors or started by a group of investors who saw a tremendous upside in these people. No, the church begins with Jesus. It was his idea to save a people for himself in eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because of their love for each other, wanted to share that love and their glory with other beings. And so they created everything so that the love that existed eternally amongst them might be spread throughout all of creation and shared amongst the people who they would save for their purposes, call by their name, and redeem them for their glory. And it's all possible because Jesus is, Paul says, the firstborn from the dead. This is the second time in just a few verses that this word, firstborn, is used by Paul. Last week we saw in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that he has power and authority over it. And we learned that this, this word firstborn is not a sequence of events that happen, but it's a title that's given to Jesus because of his place over all things. 
And similarly here, this title is given to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. How can you be born from death? Of course, this is a reference to the resurrection, to Easter, that Jesus died, was buried, and three days later rose again to new life. But if you know the history of the scriptures, other people were raised from the dead. Even in the Old Testament, there's record of Elisha raising a young boy from the dead. Of course, Jesus raised many people in his ministry, including Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and the widow's son, raised from the dead by Jesus. So Jesus was not the first person who was raised from the dead. There are records of other people being raised from the dead. And he wasn't the last person to be raised from the dead. The apostles Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, there's evidence of them raising people from the dead too. So why would Paul describe Jesus as the firstborn from the dead? Because he wasn't the first person to be raised sequentially from the dead. But he was the first person to conquer death, to be raised from the dead and to be alive forever and ever, to never die again. He is the firstborn from the dead. I think this comparison in verse 15 to verse 18 of the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from the dead is an important one for us to see. Because when we think about creation, we realize that as beautiful, as amazing, as incredible as all creation is, it ultimately finds its end in death. This is a beautiful time of year in Colorado. If you've been up in the mountains recently, you've seen that wildflowers are just going off. They're spectacular. But we also know that those wildflowers will fade. Those beautiful colors in a few weeks, certainly in a few months, and definitely by the winter, will turn from vibrant pink and orange and yellow and green to brown, dead remains. Creation is amazing, but it ultimately finds its end in death. And this is a result of the fallen state of creation because sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And now all creation ultimately dies. But Jesus has conquered death. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has permanently conquered death. And therefore, he holds the power over death. And that's why he is given by Paul the title of firstborn of the dead. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 18 that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Now, preeminent's a big word, but it basically means that Jesus would have first place in everything because he's done what no created being ever could by conquering death. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He is matchless, incomparable, first place in everything. You might know the Olympics are supposed to happen in about a month. And so right now in the United States, there's a number of Olympic trials that are happening for all sorts of different Olympic sports. And last week, the track and field United States Olympic trials occurred. And a young athlete by the name of Ryan Crosser broke a long-standing world record in the shot put. He threw a 16-pound metal ball, 76 feet and 8 inches, which crushed the previous world record by like 10 inches. It had been held for something like 20 or 21 years. Ryan also recently, within the last couple of years, broke the indoor shot-putting world record, which means that Ryan Crosser is the preeminent shot-putter in the world. There never has been someone who has thrown a shot-put further than him. He is preeminent in shot-put. Now, that's an amazing accomplishment. I mean, to throw that heavy of a ball that far is incredible. Not really sure what kind of 
transferable skill that is in the marketplace, where else you can use that, I'm sure he's incredibly strong, but he is the preeminent shot putter in the world. Now, as amazing as that is to be a world record holder, we have to admit that's a fairly narrow lane of preeminence. And yet Paul describes Jesus as being preeminent in everything, absolutely everything. So does he have first place? Is he preeminent in your life? In every category of your life, at work, at school, in the sports that you play, in the television shows and movies that you watch, in the time you spend alone, in the time you spend with other people, in your marriage, in your family life, is Jesus preeminent? It's good for us from time to time on a regular basis to do a self-assessment and see, is Jesus over every aspect of my life? You might even pause this video right now and just think through all the different categories and phases of your life. And and would you say to Jesus, do you have preeminence there? And I think it's important for us to ask that question of ourselves regularly because we often find that we just get into a routine and realize that Jesus doesn't have first place in, in our problems, in our pain. I don't know about you, but I find that the sort of small problems I experience at 2 p.m. sort of explode to crises at 2 a.m. in the morning. The same problem is just magnified in the middle of the night. And it's a good reminder for me to say, Jesus, you have first place over my problems, first place over this pain. Or if I'm angry with a person, sometimes I think it just feels better for me to stay angry with this person rather than to following what Jesus said and, and forgiving someone and saying, Jesus, you, you have first place in this relationship in my life. Jesus is preeminent. He is the unequaled author of salvation. And he is the unearned award of salvation. Paul says in verse 19 of Colossians 1, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now that word dwell in our English language can mean a bunch of different things, like Is this a temporary dwelling place? My family and I went camping for a couple days this week. We stayed in our tent. And so it was our dwelling for a few nights. It was temporary. We were all glad to be home and sleep in our own beds. But that word dwelling in the Greek, the way that Paul uses it here, is a permanent residence. It's not like a tent. It's not like a hotel. It is a permanent place where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell eternally. Just as we were reminded of Easter when we saw that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, this verse reminds us of Christmas. For unto us a son is given, the gift of God to us, the incarnation, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a permanent dwelling place for the fullness of God. Now, when we hear the phrase fullness of God, we might think of people who are filled with God, like people who just seem especially filled with the Holy Spirit or who just have such an amazing relationship with God that we would describe them as being totally filled up with God. You think of some classic examples like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or even the Apostle Paul, who we would say, man, that person was just filled with God. That's not what this phrase means. The fullness of God means that the entirety of God, all of his character traits, all of his attributes, all of his power, all that is true of God is found in Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. His greatness, his goodness, his glory, all is found in Jesus Christ. 
This is one of many clear uh, explanations in the scriptures that Jesus is God himself, that he is fully God. In chapter 2 of Colossians, in verse 9, Paul says that in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, another word for God, dwells bodily. That's another way of saying this verse, that the fullness of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is both fully God and fully man. This is important because of what Paul goes on to say in verse 20, that through him, through Jesus, he would reconcile to himself all things. If it all belongs to him, why would Jesus need to reconcile all things back to himself? Because reconciliation is required. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Because we all have sinned. We are separated from God and therefore we need to be reconciled to him. We come into this world needing to be reconciled with our creator. Our default position is being sinful and opposed to God. But the fullness of God in Christ has come to save sinners, to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself, to bring us back into harmony and to restore our relationship with him. So who does the reconciling? Are we the ones who reconcile ourselves back to God? No, it says that Jesus reconciles to himself all things. Now, if you think that maybe you're beyond saving, beyond this gift of reconciliation that's offered in Jesus, that God could never love you, I want you to see the words that Paul uses to describe what is reconciled to Jesus. All things, he says. Now, this is not a claim of universal salvation. Paul is very clear that salvation is exclusively found in Jesus Christ. But through Jesus, all things may be reconciled to him, which includes you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've thought, no matter what you've said to God, there is a promise here that all things may be reconciled to Jesus through Jesus. There is nothing that could keep you from God's offer of mercy through Christ. It's God's gift to us. And so Jesus is the unearned award of salvation, freely given by God. Have you received it? Have you asked Jesus to reconcile you to himself? If you haven't yet, I urge you to do that now, to just pour out your heart to him and say, Jesus, I ask that you would save me, that you would redeem me, that you would restore my relationship with you. And he is faithful and just to forgive you if you call out to him. So how is it accomplished? How can Jesus reconcile to himself all things? Paul closes these verses by saying that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the unequaled author of salvation, the unearned award of salvation, and the unmatched agent of salvation. He is the way by which we are saved. Because of his work on the cross, because of what he has accomplished, and he alone, we might live forever with him. It's not our job to make peace with God or to make peace with Jesus. Jesus has made peace on the cross. It's ours to accept it, to receive the free gift that's offered to us through his work on the cross, through the blood that was shed by him freely and joyfully so that you might be restored in relationship to him. It's ours to accept, to believe that Jesus, the King of salvation, is the unequaled author of it, the unearned award of salvation, and the unmatched 
agent of salvation. So who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. My friends, my prayer is that if we ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus? Or if we have conversations with friends or family or coworkers about who Jesus is, that these verses, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, might be on our hearts, might be on repeat, might be a way for us to answer this question as Paul did for the church of the Colossians of who Jesus is. So if he's the king of salvation, if he is in charge of the church, if he is the one who rose from the dead and promises to raise you, isn't he worth surrendering to as your king? Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you now. We are thankful for your mercy. Our sins are great, our God, but your mercy is more. We thank you that you have poured out your mercy in reconciling to yourself all things, us included, sinful people in need of salvation. We worship you and give you thanks for who you are, our King of salvation, the King of creation, the King of all kings, and the Lord of all, all lords. We love you, Jesus. Amen.